Hello and welcome to another edition of the NCG Golf Podcast. It is a beautiful, crisp winter's morning and it feels like Christmas Day because it's Tiger Comeback Day. I'm joined by my regular co-host, Steve Carroll, who's as excited as I am. Yeah, I'm less excited because this these crisp conditions mean temporary greens, Tom, and restricted courses. I like my full 18. They do, they do mean that, yeah. But let's let's just let's just focus on the positives. It's Tiger Comeback Day. I've, honestly, I feel like a kid in a sweet shop. I was in the office yesterday playing that scratch video. You know how it goes? Can't call it a comeback. Do you remember that from his first comeback? I, I didn't remember it, but since you've played it incessantly, every moment I've been in the office with you, it's hard to forget it now. But the strange thing was the sort of Matthews, the junior journalists, they're like, they're sort of Tiger comeback virgins, aren't they? This is their first time and everyone remembers their first time. And I could, you could sort of see it in their eyes. There was like a sort of frisson of excitement thinking, ooh, what's it going to be like? And it's been very, it's very neat, been interesting, hasn't it, online? Because there's, there's now people who are kind of old, old heads at this. They've kind of, they've seen it all before. They know that there's some kind of, he plays some tricks on us. So we have had the usual sort of parade of Tiger swing videos and people say, look how well he's swinging it and he's swinging it better than ever and saying this is the sort of sixth incarnation of Tiger's golf swing. It's Tiger 6.0. But people are now sort of very careful, aren't they? That they know that his golf swing's not the only thing. It's We need to assess how he's walking. And he kind of shambled up to his press conference and we can have a look, good look at how he's walking on day four. It's uh, We're old hands at this now, aren't we? We know not to go off in our pockets quite as badly as we normally do. I mean, I've... <laughs> I've come onto this podcast this morning in quite a cynical mood, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to sharpen up if we're going to, I can't carry on like this for the next hour, but I, I do feel like there's, there's something very Sinatra-esque about this. I mean, like how many times is Tiger going to come back now? What is this? The fifth, the sixth, you know, there's like, I don't know. which version of, which version of the greatest hits are we going to see released this time? And I'm kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to see him back. It is. Um, but it's the, the story's a bit old hat now. Um, and I don't think personally he's going to win any tournaments. It is great to see him on a golf course. And I am genuinely optimistic about the prospect of him actually being able to get through a major season, but I'm deeply cynical about the idea that he's going to play once a month as well. You know, like you get two things with Tiger, you get, oh, I'm basically on death's bed because I'm so injured or you get the all my injury problems have solved and I'm feeling right as rain and the truth is largely in between isn't it um no, I, I, do you know what I, I think that is very inaccurate I think that nobody calls Tiger's capabilities better than Tiger I think when he came back last year you could sort of see that he knew he was saying wasn't he that I'm not going to be able to play a full schedule I might just play the majors kind of see how it goes, don't know how my body's going to hold up. And then lo and behold, it didn't hold up um, after he hobbled out of a sort of murky, damp Augusta last spring. Um, whereas this time, I think he's he's much more talking it up. And he, he, he definitely is not going to try and play if he doesn't think he can compete. So when he's saying things like, I'm going to play once a month, I think that's huge. And obviously he's been asked the question, um, do you think he can win again? And you might say, and obviously he said, yeah. But I just don't. I just don't he think always, he's in the. He's not in the habit of bullshit, is he? I don't know. He always says that. Even when he was crooked, like crooked last year, he said he thought he could win. He was asked a question last year. He's, oh yeah, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be competing if I didn't think I could win. I'd be delighted if we get 
a semblance of Tiger back, a competitive Tiger. It's fantastic because it just lifts golf. Um, and as you say, you know, while I might not be, you know, putting out the bunting this time, um, people are genuinely excited about it. I bet the figures for watching golf this week will be off the scale. I bet, you know, he's teeing off at very reasonable times for a UK audience. Um, I bet there'll be massive amounts of people watching. And that's absolutely fantastic for our sport. It really is. Uh, I just don't want to get, I've been, I've been let down too many times, Tom. I just don't want to get too excited about it. I don't want to get into like rainy May and it's cold and about 65 degrees and watch Tiger like pull out again. But that is, but that is not the point, is it? That is not the point. Like all experiences in life are underwhelming, right? Let's just get that straight. I remember going to Ayers Rock and thinking, brilliant, I'm now on a rock in the middle of Australia. Like the point of the the point of doing stuff and observing stuff and getting excited about things is not the thing itself, is it? It's the anticipation. It's the kind of glance across a bar. It's the kind of like the build-up. It's like the fluffing that goes with it. So he might well go out and shoot 82 today. It doesn't matter. On my Christmas day will end up in a massive argument between my family like it does every year. But that does not stop us getting excited about it. And I know, as well as you do, that you have been peeking into all the tweets about oh, what shoes is he wearing? Who's going to be caddying for him? Is his lad going to caddy for him? All of that stuff. You can't. You can't avoid it. You love it. I've actually managed to avoid managed to avoid quite a lot of it. Actually, I did peek into the shoes thing only because I thought we should write about it. Um, but apart from that, I am I am genuinely. I don't want to sound too downbeat about it. I am genuinely looking forward to seeing the big cat back out again today. It'll be really really good. However, I'm just like I've been let down so many times, Tom. Well, I will be. Uh... I'll be somewhere between kids swimming and kids football, and I will definitely be on SkyGo watching every single move of his. I think, Steve, in the immortal words of someone, is it possibly Winston Churchill, when a man is sick of Tiger comebacks, he is sick of life itself. So I'm saying just get it where you can get it, but Steve, like this is this is what we live for. I know, um, I know Churchill liked golf, but I don't I don't think he's I don't think he's into Tiger in the same way. I think well, I'm paraphrasing a quote about London, but I'm pretty sure it was him. Anyway, it's Tiger Comeback Day. So we've had a Tiger press conference. Um, so weirdly, like we obviously have to analyse literally how he walks to the stage. But as well as being kind of um, literally the needle in terms of uh, viewership of golf, he's also now very much a statesman of the game. And he's kind of obviously involved in the kind of power struggles between the PGA Tour, internally at the PGA Tour, and between the PGA Tour and the PIF. Um, he has been sort of front and centre in driving a change in terms of the PGA board. So the, the players now have the majority vote. Um, and that all came about, I think, because of how uh, the potential merger with the PIF was announced. And it was the first time, really, that we've heard him speak on it. Um, and he was quite strident. I don't know if you've picked up on some of those quotes. Not in the same detail as you obviously have. I mean, I've read the headlines. Obviously, he was frustrated. And uh, there's obviously that... Um... There's obviously the big line headline, isn't it? That was kind of directed at Monaghan, I thought, which was this can't be allowed to happen again, wasn't it? I mean, there are the the players are definitely using Liv to kind of flex their muscles, I think. And not and Rory had basically done that by himself a little bit, hadn't he, as being sort of like the PGA Tours spokesperson. Then obviously Rory got shafted <laughs> when these um negotiations with Pith were revealed. And, you know, not unsurprisingly 
although he's stating other reasons for doing so. I think there is a little bit of bat being taken home about it, and 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 so there should be. He was, I, I personally think he was like really badly let down. Um, but now we've got this kind of revitalized players' council as a result. Jordan Spieth's just come on in Rory's place, and Jordan's had things to say as well, hasn't he? So there's definitely a sense of I think of from the players' point of view, them sensing an opportunity here um, within these negotiations where they think the PGA Tour might be slightly vulnerable, um, where they can sort of exact some concessions and get some hard-won, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, where they can get some hard-won concessions out of PGA Tour top brass. Yeah, I, I like, but I think this is the first time, well, certainly the first time it's kind of crystallised in my brain what Tiger's role's been in that. So if you've had sort of Rory as the kind of attack dog who's been very very comfortable kind of uh, saying what he thinks and committing those words to writing committing those words in interview tiger's been very very circumspect it's obviously helped that he hasn't had to um front up in terms of tournament press conferences this year but if tiger's the attack dog it feels like that from a player's point of view at least at the moment that tiger's very much the puppet master and he is he is calling a lot of the shots and i the jay monahan thing's interesting because they've they've almost gone out of their way to not kind of vilify him um and like the guys obviously had some difficulties this year in terms of coping with the whole scenario which he's been very candid about in his interview yesterday um but he's also been sort of very weak in terms of his position as, as ceo and i don't mean i don't mean he's made weak decisions i mean that his position has been weakened by the corner that he's been backed into so if there was going to be some kind of coup or there was going to be kind of some kind of um outcry for him to go then tiger could have led that tiger could have sort of that could have that would happen at the drop of a tiger press conference basically and they're not doing that and i think they understand that the kind of direction of travel is the only direction of travel available um and i think there are obviously some grumblings in terms of how it was handled back in the summer when it was announced and people being kept in the dark but it's one of these kind of the, the end justifies the means almost and if they do get to a deal then i think an awful lot of that will be forgotten. And I think that is why they're being not protective of Monaghan, but they are being very careful not to persecute him. I think it's it'd be interesting to see what happens with Liv this year. Liv feels to me to be on a precipice is not the correct word, but you know, the initial momentum of Liv feels to me to have stalled. Um I mean, obviously, it will be reignited if John Rahm moves there and who knows what's going on there. I mean, I'm sure we'll find out in due course. There's a lot of things being said about deals already being done and the money. Um, but while it's not announced, it's not signed, is it? I mean, Rahm moving to live would give that to a massive shot in the arm. But otherwise, they're sort of floundering a little bit, I think. You know, you've heard grumblings about scheduling not being complete. Um, you've seen um, a free agency period, which, I mean, is just one of the most embarrassing things I think I've seen in professional sport, you know, kind of like a free agency period where no one moves, where Pat Perez leaves the four aces to then re-sign for the four aces, where where Bert Wiesberger decides that going back to the DP World Tour is actually what he wants to do rather than play on live for another year and gets apparently live to pay his fines for him. I mean... Um, the TV deal is is obviously often talked about as well, and it is. I mean, like it is very clear um, that you can watch this thing for free in Europe, in the UK, and not enormous numbers of people are doing so. I'm not saying the figures are not 
are inconsequential, they're not, but they're not enormous numbers of figures watching basically a free golf tournament. I do think there's some interesting things around Live in terms of the concept and, and, and the format and how it's done. But it does feel to me like, like why would the PGA Tour be on the back foot at the moment? You know, in the deal in the deals with Piff, it sort of feels to me that without a big shot in the arm, um, through a marquee signing like Ram, for example, Liv just Liv feels to me to be standing still at the moment. You know, the, the, we're going to have these big moves between teams, none of which have really happened. I mean, like Matt Wolf is still on Smash. Like, how on earth is that possible, given the things that him and Brooks Kepka have said about each other this year? How is that How is that possible? And the reality is, it's because there's not much move around. There's not a great amount of talent to shift about at the moment. Maybe the Live Golf Promotions event will change that, but I don't think so, because it looks at the moment, I know people are, you know, the, the list is going to be revealed soon and we'll get a clearer grasp of who's actually in the frame for it. But at the moment, the Live Golf Promotions event looks a lot like an Asian tour event. Um, which they've had the opportunity to get on to live this year through the Asian series and the international series and stuff. So, you know, if, if I'm if I'm Jay Monaghan and I'm Tiger Woods and I'm looking at the potential PIF PGA Tour situation at the moment, I'm not backing down. I think you're actually in a good place currently. Well, I mean, there's a, there's quite a few things what you've just said there. First of all, like absolutely credit to you for getting into the internal politics of what is happening with live transfers because like that could be that could that could be big stories couldn't it like if we were inverted commas sticking to the golf right then you could be talking about who's moving teams and the 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 kind of narratives that are being created and this is that that is the kind of dream that we were sold at the start from a kind of a live structure point of view is that we're going to create the type of transfer news and the 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 type of off course intrigue that you see in other sports through this kind of unique system of, of player trading um and like, like I say, absolutely credit to you for kind of getting into some of that. But if it's a non-story, um, like um, people re-signing for the same team and the kind of the the free agency thing being a little bit of a nonsense, it is quite hard to get into. Now, what I would say in Liv's defence is that I sort of think the same thing about what's happening on the PGA Tour. It feels like a phony war because no one really knows what any of this stuff means, how significant it is going into next year. What I think we're actually seeing is kind of a very kind of high level um, negotiation strategy playing out in the public eye. So there's been loads of little tells, I think, where like the Ram rumors a couple of weeks ago, like just really, are you really going to stump up whatever 600 million quid when you're about to do a deal where there's no need to pay this money? Because apparently this is there's going to be free movement between the two tours next year anyway. That feels like a negotiating chip. I feel like um, the sort of announcements of the of the PIP money, that again, that is kind of like, feels like a negotiating chip. And then that's backed up with the kind of news that we're getting external investors and the PGA Tour no longer going to be reliant on the PIF money to sustain its purses. All of these little things just feel like posturing from one side or the other to try and make sure that when a deal is done, that they're holding the real power. Um I think the latest stuff this week from what Tiger said and what Monaghan said is that they're talking about when a deal's done, not if a deal's done. And that is like a a sort of nuanced shift from the the feeling that there's been over the last three or four weeks that kind of battle lines were drawn again. But for goodness sake, for the good of professional golf and for the 
the good of the golf fan. Just sort it out because how tired are you of going onto social media and flipping live bots, sticking it into whatever's happening on the PGA Tour? Like nothing can happen at the moment in professional golf without someone saying, he's only saying that because he's a live head or he's only saying that because he's a PGA Tour fan. Like it is ridiculous. We just want to watch the best players playing the best golf courses and the best competition as regularly as possible, please. Well, social media is always clear or unclear, isn't it? And so one one view or the other, and life is always grey. Yeah, and then Ultimately. just just the, the the sort of the not not being able to see the future is very dispiriting for anybody. Um, if you don't, if you can't see what you're going to be doing next year, and I think that is the way that the sports fans are going because it just gets very tiresome. So you tell me what happens next year if there's no deal. The silence is telling. I don't know. I imagine, well, I mean, live goes on because players are on multi-year contracts, so it's not like they're going to fold. The, the PIF aren't short of cash, are they, so they can maintain it. How long would they maintain it for if there's no prospect of OWGR, no prospect of recognition? Um I mean, I, I certainly think you. I certainly think that six hundred million wouldn't get paid unless they believed that it was the straw that would break the camel's back. That you know, the movement of someone that significant, say a John Ram figure, would then um, open up a kind of uh, rolling carousel um, between the totos. But I don't know. Listen, I, I sound like I'm filibusting here, and I'm just sort of stretching for time because because I, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Filibusting. What on earth does that mean? That's a word from like that's a Brexit word. It's a West Wing word, isn't it? No, that was definitely that came around about the time of like um what was the other thing when Johnson and his cronies tried to um prorogue Parliament. Yeah, that's that's on the list with proroguing, that is filibustering. Um I yeah, I, I think it is. Um it's in what it's what happens in American politics where a guy stands up and can essentially delay the passage of legislation by basically talking relentlessly all the time, nonstop. Right, amazing. Kind of sums up my role on this podcast quite well, I think, actually. Can I just true. say that I think you filibuster quite regularly? Yeah. Well, <laughs> if that's yeah. the case. I've literally <laughs> just said that. I'm not, it's nice that you're listening to me. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, it's because I had that thing where I had it in my head and then you were still speaking. It's because I, I was filibustering, that's why. Yeah. Anyway, so in a scenario where there is no deal, like that just means another year of live coming for whoever they want to come for with boodles of cash, oodles of cash, boodles of cash, bundles plus oodles equals boodles. I think that's what happened there. Um, and that's not good, is it? Because that's just going to, it's just going to be another year of the game being torn apart. And they will, won't they? Like if they can't do a deal, they're just going to revert to their um, aggressive signing on strategy and they will get more people. I think where I've got to is that what happens is if there is a deal, then you can see that working, can't you? Because you are, there's only, there aren't many PGA Tour stalwarts who are vocally anti. There's possibly only one. Um, so it feels to me that it's it's much easier to envision a future where there is a deal. I mean, yeah. I just think that um, the longer this goes on, um, the more Liv starts to look like um, a retirement home for some players who aren't as good as they used to be and a proving ground for brand new promising players 
who have got the opportunity to earn an awful lot of money. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, potentially, um, but it's not the best players in the world going at it every month or so, is it, in, in one of these um, signature events? You know, I think, like, Liv cannot claim Cam Smith aside um, to be a place where the best players in the world are currently playing. There's a lot of players there who are, you know, to put it mildly, on the downgrade. Um, and I don't mean that, that's going to sound really negative, but, you know, time waits for no one. Um, there are a lot of players on live now, like a lot of their headline signings are all in their 40s, aren't they? Or am I being unfair there? Maybe I'm being a bit unfair. No, I don't, I don't think you are unfair. But I think that sort of speaks to my point is that their current roster, that it doesn't sustain anyone's interest. They need more people and they'll come and get them if they have to. Um, and that's, I guess, is what's concerning if there isn't a deal. But do you not think that they've already had the opportunity to do that? I mean, let's say that this thing falls apart, right? And live and the PGA Tour are where they are six months ago, uh, assuming there's no massive law problems this time because obviously that costs millions and millions of pounds um these some of these people that you'd expect live to go for have already been offered huge amounts of money haven't they i mean you've heard the reported sums being offered to tiger a couple of years ago wasn't it like a billion dollars or something who knows if that's true um you know there's 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 huge money been apparently banded around to various players and they haven't gone yeah but i think that since that since those days i think that the the kind of some of the moralistic arguments and the the kind of playing for heritage has been weakened by the pga tours willingness to potentially merge yeah so i just think it's it's still very up in the air still nobody knows um and the sooner it gets sorted out the better for us the golf fan i would not disagree so speaking of us the golf fan have you done any golf I did. I played at the Harry Potter course last week. <laughs> so this is you're calling it the Harry Potter course because it's the course we cannot mention. Yeah, because you get you get upset when I say the words close house. It's like a Beetlejuice thing. If I say it three so times, that, evil things are going to happen. Would that not make it the Voldemort course? Just for the record, Possibly. it's Voldemort who we can't mention. Anyway, I was there. I played on. I played on the Philly course. It was really good to get. Um, it was really good to get some golf in because there hasn't been a lot of it, has there, recently. And looking out of my window at the moment, I'm not sure there's going to be a great deal of it this weekend either. But um, it was good to get out. Um, the game was very rusty. The conditions were very wet. But it's winter, so who cares? You know, I genuinely don't give a rat about how I play in the winter. I'm just happy to get some exercise generally. So uh, I've not been, I haven't played any golf this week, but I have been practicing. Um, I've been seeing Joe Feather at uh, Leeds Golf Centre. And I'm just so happy to be back in the rhythm of having golf lessons again. Every two weeks, Wednesday morning, half past 10, an hour where it's just all about me. Um, and it's been great. He's been, he's very, I don't know, he's like, he's got a very sort of subtle way about him. He's kind of like told me how good I am, told me that my fundamentals are sound. He's kind of moved me over to his side of the room. And then he's just sort of feeding this stuff in about you know, just kind of drops it in saying, oh, you've got this little habit, but all good players have that little habit. And I'm sort of thinking I've just shanked it, Joe. Um, so he's kind of, he's, he's doing very nicely with my ego, I think. I saw a tweet, sorry, an X 
yesterday. I can't remember who it was from. If I can find it, I'll credit the person. But it is on X, so it's not my own work. And I was, and I, I saw it last night, and I thought this would really, really, this is the kind of thing you would really, really like. And what the tweet, what the tweet, the X was basically saying was, if you have a full time job and a family, and you play to a scratch handicap or better, you really are some sort of golfer. Yeah, or either it's basically, that or you, basically you, you saying don't. that anyone who played off scratch managed to keep to a level of scratch while um, holding down other commitments was basically like very good at what they do. I thought you would or like the, that. The worst dad and husband in history. It's like people who do triathlons, isn't it? It's like, well done, mate. You've done a you've done a uh, sub fifty minute ten k, but you haven't spoken to your wife in six months. Well, exactly. Um, I should say this podcast is, as ever, brought to you by TaylorMade, um, who are going to have a very good week, aren't they? Because Tiger will be golfing his TP5 uh, in sunny climbs this weekend. So a lot of airtime for them. And we're going to get into a little bit about golf balls. This is kind of the, the main the main thrust of today's podcast. Um, we've picked up on some stuff on social media, and we've picked up on some quotes from uh, RNA chief exec Martin Slumbers. Um, and this is to do with bifurcation, a word that I can now pronounce. This is indeed progress. Yeah. So a little bit of background to this. So bifurcation is essentially a splitting of the game's rules, whereby one portion of the game will play to one set of rules and one portion of the game will play to another set of rules. And in this case, it particularly relates to golf equipment. Um, and it, the word has kind of come to prominence because of... Um, the RNA's intention to do something about the distance the golf ball travels. Um, so earlier this year, they announced some, I guess, intentions rather than firm plans, or they muted, they mused that they may be looking to introduce a tournament ball for specific events to try and curb the distance that um, elite golfers hit the golf ball to try and protect historic tournament venues. Um, and at the time, they were kind of very firm on the point that they were not going to introduce a limited golf ball or try and limit the distance the golf ball travels for the amateur golfer. Um, and that seems to have changed a little bit. So there's been some press conferences recently where Martin Slumbers has said some things that kind of lead us to believe that they may well be going down a different route. Um, now, the specific quote is not within my reach, but I think you do have it for us, do you, Steve? I do. Um, let me give you some, uh, for those who've, if you've basically been in a cave or head in the sand, um, a slight bit more context. So there is a agreement within the RNA and the USGA that the ball goes too far at the top level of the game. Um, and they've done various things in the past, um, to try and limit distance to a certain amount, but they say that um, the ball is still going further than it did 15 years ago, and we've uh, got to find a way of stopping that. So in March, uh, the RNA and USGA, as Tom said, uh, introduced a proposed model local rule, and that model local rule would be used uh, was aimed to be used in professional events only and elite amateur events. Now, uh, Martin Slumbers has talked a number of times about has been asked a number of times about well, what is elite amateur level, and for him, it's sort of under eighteen boys. So this the this model local rule would have applied specifically to the men's game alone, not the women's game and not the amateur game. 
So this model local rule was announced, which, as you said, Tom, essentially introduces a tournament ball. Um, it gets quite complicated in terms of the um, in terms of the uh, specifics about it, but it is worth noting before I tell you what Slumbers said. So apologies if I'm rabbiting on for people, but it, it is all decent notice. So the proposal was. Um, was proposed to come in in no earlier than July, January 2026. Under the model local rule, bowls would not be able to exceed what's called the current overall distance standard limit of 317 yards plus three yards tolerance either way at what's called modified actual launch conditions with a clubhead speed of 127 miles an hour based on a calibration setup of 11 degrees and 37 revolutions per second, which translates into 2,220 RPM. All right, there's a lot of technicals there. But in essence, um, what this would have meant was it was expected to reduce hitting distances at the top level by 14 to 15 yards on average for the longest hitters with the highest club head speeds. So this was announced. Obviously, people got very excited about it, and there's been this notice of comment um, going on for some time, at which um, it's fair to say, I think, that it's not been massively liked. Uh, PGA Tour have complained about it. Um, PGA Tour of America and other PGAs have complained about it. England Golf complained about it um, quite strongly, actually. England Golf complained about it. So it hasn't been met with any universal love. And in an interview for Golf Digest with Don John Huggan, uh, Martin Slumbers was asked about this, and he said, uh, the game was not happy with the model local rule. There was a view that it would create a bifurcated game at the elite level. It was a very strong pushback against that. The PGA Tour was very public about it, so was the PGA of America. A number of players spoke out, and our job is to listen. But our responsibility is to the long-term future of the game. Along with the USGA, the RNA is a custodian of the game. We are responsible for our period of time, something that's gone on for hundreds of years and will go on for hundreds of years more. So we are listening and we have made a decision about what we are going to do. We are working through that at the moment and we will make it public before the end of the year. So we're going to get a decision on rollback before the end of the year. But... But if you look at what um, the RNA CEO has said in the past, um, and I think he said it again um, this week, he has said, there are only three options. We can bifurcate, you change the whole game, or you do nothing. And doing nothing is not an option. We stand by that. Which raises a, a very, very interesting point. So if there's massive opposition to bifurcation and you accept that, but the only options are bifurcating or changing the whole game. What does that mean for the whole game? Does that mean you're going to bring back a, you're going to roll the ball back for everyone? So it's significant, isn't it? Um, and we don't, we don't know, do we, that the ball is going to be rolled back for everyone. No. We know that we know that the options available to them are to bifurcate, which he is saying there's been opposition to, or to roll the ball back for everyone. To change to, the game, yeah. To Yeah, to roll back it, the distance the ball travels one way or the other for everyone. Um, and in many ways, I guess it's Hobson's choice because there will be opposition to either of those solutions and there'll also be opposition to doing nothing. Um, so just to, if we just 
stick on the bifurcation point, and you touched on it there where you said there was opposition to it, England Golf opposed it, perhaps more significantly the PGA Tour opposed it. Can you just explain to me why? Why is there such opposition to it? Like, What is the argument against it? Well, in terms of um, England Golf, which is within my remit, that's probably the easiest one for me to explain. Um, It is because of the confusion that they believed there would be with a bifurcated ball for people who are playing both elite event and amateur events. And, and and that does, for me, that is a very sensible thing to say um, because you, I, I'd been saying from March, really, that if, where you have a position where you're asking golfers to change their golf ball depending on the event that they play, someone is going to come unstuck there. Um, in a big tournament, some you know well-meaning amateur is going to end up using the wrong ball. Um, oh, I've used my I've used my bifurcated ball when I shouldn't have. I mean that probably won't be as problematic as using the normal ball in a bifurcated event. But there's but there is an opportunity for confusion there. I, I think some of England Golf's other complaints were around you know potential cost of a new ball, how available it would be. Um, you know we're asking we're asking golfers who are paying a lot of expense um, to enter events to then fund a new expense. So, so at the amateur level, I did think actually there was um, some pretty coherent arguments for um, opposing um, the new the new ball. I mean, so, what, ter- so one one thing you would say about that is that you, you can almost sort of deal with that in one foul swoop because a lot of that emanates from the definition that Slumbers has placed on the elite golfer. And I think he has said that it's um, under 18 um, international level, which that is a muddying of the waters because that is bringing amateurs into um, the use of this tournament ball. Um, Would it not, would that not go away if they just defined it as it's, if, if you're playing golf for money, you're using the tournament ball. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the issue was that, um, the governing bodies believed that the distances that people were hitting the ball at that elite level were essentially indistinguishable um, from the the top level as well. I mean, obviously there's yardage in there, but there's, there's variations in there. But I think what what the RNA and USG are saying is these elite amateurs hit the ball too far. They hit the ball just too far as the pros do. So there's this attempt to sort of limit limit it from that level, isn't there? Well, I would agree with them. Like, there's no difference between how far the very best amateurs hit it and a, a tournament golfer, but there is a there is a difference in how much that matters, um, and how many eyeballs are watching people play seven and a half thousand yard golf courses in order to accommodate them. Um, and there is also a significant difference between protecting the venues that the home internationals go to and protecting the venues that. The, Mas- the Masters is played at or US Open or indeed an Open. Um, so I, I wonder if there's a kind of shruggy shoulders a little bit about that and if actually they just bumped the definition of what makes an elite golfer to just be the, a divide between the professional ranks and the amateur ranks, then that might suit everyone a little bit better. It feels to me significant that the PGA Tour said that they wouldn't adopt the model local rule in their events. Um, and it's kind of quite it's quite hard to try and work out how that would unravel that if the RNA went down a bifurcated route and said, yes, we are introducing this model local rule and it was adopted by their championships. So let's say the open most significantly, but also things like the British amateur um, and the home internationals. And then further afield, the USGA would probably follow suit and 
adopt the model rule in the US Open. Um, the masters, I guess, would would make their own decisions. But you would, I would say very strongly that one of the most significant venues that needs protecting by the model local rule is Augusta. So I I could couldn't see them not adopting it, which would then leave you would then have a split in terms of the men's professional game where effectively majors were using one golf ball and run of the mill tour events were using a different golf ball. And that is very strange. And then you're into, so if the, if the RNA and the USGA can't dictate to the PGA tour or the European tour or whomever else, what rules they adopt, then that is a big question mark over how has the RNA and the USGA's influence waned. So I suspect there's very, very little appetite to go into battle with someone as powerful as the PGA Tour, and I suspect Liv would have the same view um, over something like as significant as what golf ball is used. So that feels like a very, very significant opposition uh, to bifurcate. I think if you did a straw poll of certain PGA Tour players, for example, um, there would be some enthusiasm um, towards curbing the reach the RNA and the USGA have over the rules of golf. I mean, you see it, you see it every time there's a rules of golf change, you know, a controversial one, you know, some pro comes out and says, these guys have never played proper golf. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so the RNA and the USGA, particularly if the PGA, if they can't come to an agreement with the PGA tour, I think are in a tricky position because like, what is the, what is their thing? It is rules, isn't it? And it is handicapping and the rules of amateur status. These are like, um, the three sort of bits of glue that bind the world of golf together, the RS, the RNA and G, USGA. And I think, as, a, as I've alluded to, I think there would be some enthusiasm among certain elements of the professional game to sort of roll back. Poor choice of words, but roll back some of that influence and some of that authority that the RNA and the USGA have. So I think there's a there's a tightrope to be walked. Um, personally, uh, we said it last week. I'm not, I've, I've changed my mind in the course of seven days. I think the ball does go too far at the top level. That's just my opinion of it. I don't particularly like watching driver wedge all the time you know I, I do hike back to a day of shot making uh, on the podcast last week you know billy foster talked about the game being destroyed didn't he? he said it's not being destroyed it's being destroyed you just don't see these shots created anymore um and i tend to agree with him on that but if we have a situation and it's all just speculation of course but if we have a speculation if we have a situation sorry where um the solution to this was a rolled back ball, say, for everybody. That's catastrophic for the amateur game, right? I'm not saying it will be going 14 or 15 yards short. Right? Who knows? Like, get, let's get some tech experts on at some point who can talk to us about the relevant properties of a, of a rolled back ball, golf ball and how it would react for the amateur game. Um, compared to how it would react for the professional game. But, but let's be clear, like, you know, I am not in danger of overpowering any golf courses anytime soon. You know, length is not an issue at all um, at the club golf game. Um, and the idea, I think, that you're going to, you could make amateurs, club players, play a ball that is reduced in, that is possibly reduced in length 
because we need to cure the, the the disease of distance at the very top level would not go down very well at all with your rank and file. I think this will be one of the few examples where people would say, I don't want to play the same equipment as the pros. I was quite happy with the ball that we had. Um, I do hit the ball further than I used to, Tom. Technology has helped in that respect. I, you know, I average about between 220 and 240 with a driver. I definitely hit the driver at 46 longer than I hit it when I was 25. And technology has been great for that. But I'm not suddenly like taking driver wedge into par fives. You know, par, decent par five is still a three shotter for me because the skill element um, overpowers the benefits of the ball could have in my hands. But I just think like, a rolled back ball would be a very, very tough sell at our level. A very, very tough sell. If you think that the PGA Tour and people like that were complaining about it, wait till it hits everyone who has to buy the thing in the shops. I think your argument about the club golfer being affected by rolled back equipment is is misguided, I'm afraid. Because you so just to take the point that you just made, so you're saying, Oh, I hit the ball further than I did twenty years ago. And that's because of equipment. So you you kind of need to because your golf course is getting longer. So either at uh, Close House or at Strensel or at Cleveland, so golf courses you've been a member of over the last few years, all of those golf courses, possibly with the exception of Close House because it's newer, will have put in back tees to accommodate the fact that people are hitting the ball further. And that is to the detriment of the game because the golf the golf therefore takes longer. It's taken up more land. It's um, there's a huge anti green argument against lengthening golf courses. Um, so all that's happening is the equipment's getting longer, and the golf courses are getting more and more bloated in order to accommodate that. And I think that sorry, just to just to continue this the point about. Um, if we change the ball for everyone, what we, the argument goes, you can't change the ball for everyone because it's only 0.1% of golfers who are hitting the ball too far. And that may be the case today, but the direction of travel is that all people are hitting the ball further um, consistently. You've, you, you are case in point on that. You hit, it, you hit the ball further than you did when you were younger. That has to be do, to do with equipment. So what people say is that golf's never been in ruder health in the amateur in the amateur game. We've never had more players come into it. We've never had more newer golfers. We've never had uh, more people returning to the game kind of post-COVID. Um, so don't whatever you do, don't touch equipment because equipment is at the fulcrum of the game's popularity because it's made the games the game easier for more people. And I think that that is like total conflation of two separate points. It's coincidence. It's not causation. So golf was in decline pre-COVID and golf equipment was getting easier and easier to use pre-COVID. Then a black swan episode happened in COVID and all of a sudden golf's popular again and golf equipment has continued on the same track of becoming easier to use. But the golf boom has not happened because equipment's easy to use that that is not true to say and i would say that if you th- if you stop and think about that for a minute and you think about your average 54 handicapper um or your average total beginner they are their golf ball is no it makes no difference to them if their golf ball goes 15% further because they've just topped it or missed it or hit it sideways so reducing the distance the golf ball travels they won't know first of all they haven't used the golf ball for long enough second of all all it's doing is stopping their 50 yard slice going less far into the rough 
So I just I don't think I don't think there is any argument to be made that by rolling back equipment for everybody is making the game any harder or less appealing to the masses because it just isn't. So I mean, it's good that we're disagreeing because we're disagreeing on all levels here. Um, we just we just need to make sure we do it in a in a in a calm manner. Um, so I, I disagree with you on on the reasons for golf courses being lengthened. It's that was not because the average club player is hitting the ball further. It's because clubs had delusions of grandeur and wanted the calls themselves championship courses. So they tried to push back tees so they could get decent golf events because they needed the length because those players were hitting the ball too far. The average player, like me, has never, ever been in danger of overpowering a golf course. In fact, precisely the opposite. USGA research has recently shown that actually we are still playing even even with the help of equipment and you know ball that goes further, we are still largely playing tees that are too much for us, and we need to go forward. So you know, I I, I don't agree that um, that uh, this would um, the two things are necessarily conflated. The other thing I think is you, know, you talked about um, the fifty four handicapper there who wouldn't who wouldn't be able to notice whether their ball was going any different because they, they didn't hit the ball that far. But I'm not in that stretch. And, and the average club golfer who's a 17 handicapper, you know, does have some perception of how a ball comes off the face and how it feels and, you know, whether they've hit it properly or not. And we have no, because we're speculating, obviously, we have no idea, you know, what a rolled back ball would do for us in that certain, you know, in that, in that sense. It's very easy for, for, really good golfers you're itching to get in here so i'm just going to finish off um it's very easy for top level golfers pro golfers who hit the ball out of the middle of the face but but for those of us who spear the ball anywhere on the club face particularly um i'm, I'm we don't know how it would react you're saying you 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 wouldn't really notice any difference with a rollback ball you might notice considerable distance with a rollback ball so i agree that we're all playing golf courses that are too long but that is a separate point from the different distance the ball travels. So both of those things can be true. So we should all be moving forward tees. And if the golf ball or the distance is limited, then we can move even further forward still. Because that is where the beauty of the game lies. And there's a few things I want to try and use to try and crystallize that in your mind. So... At the moment, you're playing golf at Close House, which I suspect off its winter tees is, let's say, 6,300 yards, if I was guessing. No winter tees there. Okay, so you're playing off some forward yellow tees at about 6'3". Some of our comps are off whites. Right, okay. So you, you're doing something that's very stupid. You play in an inland course in the middle of winter that's too long, and your average round of golf is taking four hours, and you never play into your handicap, and it's a very dispiriting experience. I'm playing enough competitions yet to say whether that's true or not. Well, I can tell you. Okay, I'll put it another way. If I said to you, Steve, let's go and play golf tomorrow, would you rather, A, go and play close house of 6,500 yards off the yellow tees in wet conditions, or would you rather join me to go and play Kill Spindy at 5,000 yards uh, on some nice bouncy links to so, so the two things are not equatable. F firstly, the yellow tees at close house are something like 5.8, I think. Um, <laughs> but second, but secondly, the reason I would be attracted to the latter 
um, rather than the former is not necessarily because of the conditions, because as I'm proving at the moment, I'm quite happily driving 95 miles up the road every week or two to play golf in those conditions. At Kilspindy, it's there's different things, you know, the setting of the place, obviously, you know, the architecture of the holes that make a difference to me that might not make a difference to other people. I would concede. Oh, sorry, the point that I am making is golf. I know what you're making. Golf, golf is better when it's shorter. And I mean that in every sense of the word. If it takes less time, if the golf course is shorter, so it's a shorter walk, if it's shorter, so the, the original challenge of the golf course is maintained. And I just don't think there's getting away, any away from that. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. And he was saying, when was the last time you had any appetite to go and play, for example, somewhere like Celtic Manor off the back tees for a inverted commas, championship test. It's a long time because I've sort of come to realise that the game is much, much better when it's shorter. And it, what I would add to that, to use another example, have you ever played golf at Fixby? Yes. So phenomenal historical venue, unbelievable clubhouse, home of the Yorkshire Golf Union, home of YouTube's Hannah Holden. Um, phenomenal golf course. Much, 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 much better off what are now the ladies' tees. I'm, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you here, but I, but I think you've got an uphill argument be, with club golfers because they just don't act that way. Um, so but, what but I'm this, saying but, is they go back to the back tees. They go back out of choice. There's this, this is, we've talked about this on the podcast before. We don't need to do it again. There's this machismo argument about it. You know, if you haven't basically done it at its worst, you haven't played it. But the golf course, the, Fixby is an example. I'm not picking on Fixby because in a negative way, I'm just uh, everywhere has done this. But it has put some back, there's some further back tees in for everyday play. So for yellow tee play, because the golf ball is now going further. But if you go and walk that golf course, the original routing is very obviously from uh, the majority of the time from the women's tee. So it's a better walk because it's shorter. The, the views from those tees let you see more of most of the holes and you can see that that is where the original architecture was is intended for but it's just that it's now defunct from those tees because the ball is going too far um, was it the original architecture tom or was it changed for the haskell ball and was it changed for the do you know what i mean i mean it's a it's an that kind of argument's been going on for a hundred years hasn't it well, no, I agree. I agree. Like that, things have moved back and back and back because of advancements in technology over literally a century. But that doesn't mean that it's it doesn't need rolling back now. And I was going to ask you about how far would you do you think need things need rolling back at the elite level if you're into that argument? Um, do you do what? Do you not think that some of the stuff you're saying is kind of exactly why we do need a rollback? So do you not think there's a kind of need to protect these sort of classic courses? At the pro level, yes. I mean, I, like, I'm absolutely in favour of a rollback at the top level, you know. But I, I don't think that the and, and the RNA and USGA themselves have acknowledged this. There's like no problem with hitting distances at the amateur level. Um, so why then bring in a, a ball for everyone that restricts distance at the amateur level as well as the professional level? Because then at the amateur level, you've got to do other things, which is what you're talking about. You've got to move forward. And the, the argument that I'm making is people don't. You know, we, have, we I've played in mixed tee events at my club where 75% of players just trot straight to the back tees, even when they had the choice of the yellow or the red tee. So even if you roll the ball back for everyone – the idea that people, are, unless they're forced to, are suddenly going to start using the yellow tees as their or, or the forward tees as their as, as where they go from is is 
it, it's it's unworkable, I think, because they just won't do it unless they're basically propelled to in some way. But they, but this is that is two separate points, right? So that's if we if we just do you not on think to... that they're all do you not think they're all bound up in the same thing? I mean, I, I accept that they're two. I accept that, but one is a consequence of the other, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I do think they are bound up in the same thing, but I think for the purpose of this debate, we ought to try and split them off. So, but if we if look at it through the prism of classic courses, right? So over over in woke golf one of the biggest arguments to roll equipment back is we need to protect our classic courses we need to protect the um that that architecture we need to still be seeing the best players playing at those venues okay so at the top level that means augusta it means open venues it means us open venues at an amateur level it means protecting places like old woodley where i play okay so one side of this is can, can you host an elite amateur event or indeed a tour event at Old Woodley currently? And how would the course stand up? So if I think about some of the hardest holes at Old Woodley for the amateur golfer, it would be holes like the par 3 14th, which has got a big, a huge, great big step in front of the green and, and big bunkers on either side. That is, it measures something like 215 yards off the very back tee. Okay. So if Roy McElroy or someone who hits the ball as far as Roy McIlroy comes and plays that hole under normal circumstances, he can hit a five iron up his nose or a six iron up his nose and he can land it on the top step and it's it's no longer a challenge. So the false front is not in play. There's enough depth in the green that he can land it and stop it. it there's plenty of width in the hole, so it's not a challenge in terms of left to right. So that hole is in its current form with its T extended, it is no longer a challenge for him. Okay. So rolling back the ball means that that golfer is no longer hitting six iron. They're now hitting four iron. And you might say, well, they can still hit it up their nose and they can still land four iron, but fewer people will be able to do it. So that means that you're getting a better ball striker is advantaged more by rolling back the ball. So I think that that is kind of the biggest argument for it in elite level. You're then saying, well, okay, that's fair enough, but that's Roy McIlroy. If it's 215-yard par three with a big step in front of the green, I can't currently reach that with my driver. So what are you talking about rolling back the ball? So the fact of the matter is you have to go further forwards and you have to go and play the hole at 170 yards, which is where it was intended to be played from in the first place. So the advantage of that is that you are then getting a shorter walk because you don't have to gump back to the back tee. You're still getting a very challenging golf hole. And the fact you're playing it from 40 yards further forward is absolutely here nor there. I agree. But tell a club golfer that. Because I, because I spend a lot of time with them and I see what they do. And unless they're compelled to move forward, they will not move forward. They will just say, why am I not hitting the ball this far? There's, there's been some research done by the RNA about what people find appealing um, at the top level of the game. Um, when debating whether it's distance hitting or or what they come for. People come for the sport, right? So what people are interested in is the competition. They're interested in things going down to the wire. They're interested in um, the... It's, it's not a kind of binary thing of who can hit it the furthest. It's the kind of cut and thrust of um, top-level sport that people are interested in. Interesting. Um, well, we'll find out, won't we, before the end of the year. And um, I imagine that... The debate will then just find a new discussion point, won't it? Um, it's not over. Whatever the RNA and the USGA come up with, I think there's there's 
there's plenty of um plenty of room left in this argument at the moment isn't there but i think there is yeah and i understand you're trying to wind it up but i just think that the the the, the roll it back for everyone debate once you start to like get into that it is quite exciting because there are so many golf courses that have become pitch and putt because of how far we now hit the golf ball and the fact that those places at 5,000 yards or five and a half thousand yards could be returned to being a challenge for lots and lots more golfers and they could be the accepted norm that's really exciting because that solves loads of problems that solves the, the amount of time it takes. It sounds it solves the cost of maintaining golf courses. It's just it feels like a kind of almost like a silver bullet. If we were to say, actually, we're gonna go nuclear here and we're gonna roll the ball, we're gonna roll equipment back a number of years, that's very, very appealing. Hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Be, it's going to it's going to be interesting. Um yeah. So I'm glad you agree that I won that argument. That was good. One nil to me. Actually, it must be, it must be more than one nil. Uh, but you've got, uh, we've got a new section, haven't we, Steve? This is exciting. It was a, it resurrected, a resurrected old section. Has it got music? Has it got a jingle? It's time for Rules Corner. Steve Carroll's Rules Corner. You've got some rules questions for me, haven't you? Have I? Right. Okay. I have. To, well, I have one specific. We can get into a second if we have time. So this, this happened. If this is your opportunity to get your own back, make me look stupid. Though I'm bound to. Um, so this <laughs> happened to me at the course that shall not be named at the weekend uh, on the second hole of the Philly course. My ball was in a bunker. The problem was I couldn't see the ball because that bunker was absolutely full with leaves. I mean, like knee deep and worse actually as you got into the center of the bunker in leaves which is basically a perfect winter scenario all happening in one bunker so if your ball is in that bunker and um you're struggling to find it what are the rules there what do you think is going to happen when your ball is is in that position how can you how are you able to find your ball what happens is if, if it is lost um, is there any chance you can have free relief, Tom? There's a lot of separate questions there. But if you come to a bunker, you know your ball's in this bunker, right? You've seen it go in. You get there and all you're confronted with is basically waist-high leaves. You know it's going to be an absolute beast to try and find it. What are your options? What do you think you're going to do? Well, I'm going to try and pick this off bit by bit. So it's the correct approach. If you hit your ball into a hazard and you can't find it in a hazard, then you can agree with your partner that if it's beyond reasonable doubt or whatever the expression is, that it's in the hazard, you can then proceed with your penalty drop out of the hazard as required. But in this case, it's not a hazard because there's no stakes. So your ball's in the bunker, but you can't find it. So you tr the treatment of it in the beginning is just like a ball search. So I think you've got three minutes to find your ball within the bunker. That's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say is that leaves are loose impediments. So you are well within your rights to move the leaves out of the bunker as much as you like without moving your golf ball. Um, I think if you find your golf ball in the bunker, you can then spend as much time as you like removing the leaves from the bunker so you can play your golf ball as long as the ball doesn't move. Um if it's lost, then you are proceeding on a uh, 
stroke and distance basis. So you're going back and playing from where you hit your ball into the bunker in the first place and adding one because it's just a lost ball. Almost perfect on the first part. I'm going to pick you up for the bit about the penalty area you said by agreement um, with the playing partners because that's a lot of people think that it's not true. You've got to know or be virtually certain that the ball was in the penalty area. Um, yeah, beyond reasonable doubt. No, you, you have got to know or be certain um, I'll be virtually certain the ball is in the penalty area. Now, if witnesses have seen it go in the penalty area, so if your playing partners have seen it go in there, that's fine. But if you're not known or virtually certain, you can't just turn around to your playing partners and say, we can all agree that's in the hazard, can't we, lads? No, you can't. No one or virtually certain is the provision. Um, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't mean to sort of dampen your otherwise first-class treatment of golf ball lost in leaves. Um, But it is an important point because a lot of golfers get that one mixed up. I've seen some pretty good golfers who've come in and said, oh, well, we all agreed it was in the penalty area. Well, like, was it? Um, Did you know? Was it virtually certain? Um, Anyway, you are right, Tom. So let's get on to the positives, of which there were many. Um, Leaves are loose impediments. Um, Rule 15.1a says you can remove a loose impediment anywhere on the course, and you can do so in any way using a hand, foot, club, or any other equipment. You can even use a leaf blower if you've got one. You can use a leaf blower to blow the leaves out of the way. Um, Obviously, uh, in this case, Tom, you talked about moving the golf ball and um, the one-shot penalty. Not quite in this case. I mean, it, it does come into play later on. Um, but in this, in in the first specific instance, you are looking for a ball, so you're searching for it. So you can shift big piles of, of, of leaves about. You can get other people involved to give you a hand, and because you're searching for that ball, you can take reasonable actions to find it and if that's part of a fair search there's no penalty if you improve the conditions affecting the stroke and there's no penalty if you accidentally move the ball when trying to find or identify it you've just got to make sure you put it back where it was now we'll get on to the moving loose impediments thing um, and whether that's a stroke penalty or not uh, in a minute because there is something else that comes from that you are right tom you are still subject to search time. So you get your three minutes. And if you haven't found the ball in those three minutes, then stroke and distance is all that's left for you. Now, I've got an ancillary question for you in this one, which is, do you think it's fair um, that you were put in that position? Should your club have taken the matter out of your hands? Should someone have known um, that that bunker was full of leaves? And do you think that there is a provision within the rules of golf, hint, hint, um, that allows a club to do that? Uh, well, there is a provision in the rules of golf that allows a club to do that. It's called um, no play zone, isn't it? It is not. I thought it was. It's like ground up. Not, like- no, no, not in this case. I mean, like, it's, so, the, so you're talking about a slightly different point. I mean, the, the, the committee competition committee could declare the bunker to be ground under repair. And if it's ground under repair, then the whole of the bunker is ground under repair and it becomes part of the general area and not part of a bunker. So then you can just basically, it doesn't actually matter at that point whether you're, whether you can find your ball in the bunker or not. Um, as once it's been classed as an abnormal course condition, as long as you, again, you were no or virtually certain that the ball went in there, you just basically find the area, the last point at which it crossed and then use that as your, as your sort of area to take relief. Um, but, what I was what I was looking at here was a specific model local rule, which is for those committees that don't necessarily want the whole of the bunker to be classed as GUR. 
And what this local rule does is it allows competition committees to to treat piles of loose impediments um, as ground under repair. So where that specific leaves are, for example, say you've got a bunker that's half full of leaves, ball goes in the bunker and into those leaves you wouldn't necessarily want to declare the whole bunker to be ground under repair would you it's just that area where the leaves are that's the problem so you can treat piles of loose impediments um as ground under repair and again at that point tom you know i said earlier um if you as long as you know that your ball went in that pile of leaves you don't actually have to find it don't have to be able to find it. You can basically just use the last estimated point where the ball crossed that condition and find the nearest point of complete relief. But that's got to be in the bunker. Now, if the committee haven't um, put a general, a, a total ground under repair rule in, um, that point about that area must be in the bunker is significant because what do you say if there's lots of leaves in the bunker and you're struggling to find a point at which to drop it? So you find then what's called a point of maximum available relief. So you drop in the area that's least affected by leaves, but still in the bunker. And this is this has become quite complicated, but I'm going to try and simplify it for you. You talked earlier on about moving loose impediments, right? Because in this case that I'm talking about, you're essentially going to drop the ball into a pile of leaves. They might be the point of maximum available relief, but there are still leaves there. A question that people often will ask is, well, can you remove those leaves in your relief area before dropping the ball? And the answer is you can. There's a clarification to the loose impediment rule that says um, when a ball is to be dropped or placed, the ball is not being put back in a specific spot and therefore removing loose impediments before dropping or placing a ball is allowed. So I'm going to try, I've I've talked a lot of you there and some of that is, is quite uh, it's quite complicated, so I'm going to try and simplify it by re-explaining it to people. So your ball's gone in the bunker. Committee has got a rule in place that says piles of loose impediments are classed as ground under repair. You can't find your ball, but it doesn't matter because you know that your ball's in there. So you're then dropping a ball um, at your point of maximum available relief that's still in the bunker. You get to that point and you say, well, there are still leaves here. I'm going to drop into some leaves. The clarification to this rule allows you to clear the loose impediments, remove loose impediments from that relief area before you drop it, and then you can drop it. Right. So I think what it flagged up to me is this: it, there's just this inconsistency, I think, between um, stroke and distance for a lost ball and this you're certain the ball's gone in the hazard. I would like to see that um, made uniform, whereby if your ball's gone into a hazard, it's just stroke and distance, the same as anything else. Or the opposite, whereby we can agree, or I can say, I am certain my ball is in that pile of leaves, or indeed bush, or indeed foliage, or whatever else, and I'm then going to take a penalty drop um, as per the rules of golf from there. But I do think that is very kind of inconsistent thing in the rules of golf where one offline shot is treated differently from another offline shot or in this case online shot i've written about this and i've argued exactly the same thing i don't see what the difference is between ball lost on the course so lost in rough and ball lost in a penalty area if you if it's known or virtually certain that it's in there are you getting so you get this weird situation for example with unplayable ball in a bush where you actually have to identify the golf ball in the bush you know it's in the bush you saw it go in there so known or virtually certain is not a problem but to but to take relief you actually have to use the spot of the ball so you've got to identify where that ball is it's it's not great 
Um, but when I argued this, and um, you know, you can read the piece on nationalclubgolfer.com, a lot of people disagreed with me um, and said yeah. that the puni- said that the punishment was appropriate. The only one thing I'll say about it is, I don't know if we've spoken about this on the podcast before. If I have, apologise for repeating ourselves. The rules have never been consistent about stroke and distance and the penalties for it. If you look back through the history of the rules from 1744, it's varied in a number of ways, which shows you the complexity of the debate. For me, mm. if a ball's out of bounds, stroke or distance. If a ball's lost on the golf course or lost in the penalty area, what's the difference? What is the difference? No, I agree with that. I agree with that. That's interesting. And it is a very funny picture of you stood in that bunker trying to hit it out of those leaves. It is. I hope I explained it well. Um, if I didn't, please read the piece because it explains it much more simply within there. Yeah. It, it must have been quite aggravating, to be fair. Um, that was good so I think we'll leave it there for this week shall we thank you very much for listening please do give us a subscribe on wherever you get your podcast that really helps us massively interested to hear what you think about bifurcation golf ball rollbacks Uh, hope you enjoy Tiger's comeback thanks for listening